We've just returned from following a path through a small part of the local ecology in Costa Rica and reflecting on a few ways that the ecology is already adapting, adjusting, and competing, which raises an interesting parallel for us to dive into. How is human ecology adapting? Indeed, human ecological systems are being affected in countless subtle and profound ways. Our social ecology is situated and constructed. So what does that really mean? From the houses we live in, uh, you can think of you know, where you grew up, uh, the social networks and communities that we are a part of, our friends, our, our family networks, human beings are deeply connected, not to just each other, but also to the surrounding ecology. There are so many different ways that we are, are so deeply connected. Hi everyone, this is Francesca Demery and Kelton Miner, and this is the Adaptation Spaceship Podcast, part two of our series, Designing for Climate Adaptation in Costa Rica. We're on the ground in San Jose with CID, the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design, and the series accompanies a workshop we're teaching here as part of CID's summer school. Diving in, what's an example of a social ecological system that's already adapted? Sure. I mean, if we think about climate change on a global scale for a second, imagine that we sort of look at the full planet and imagine you're a satellite orbiting the Earth. And now we're flying from Costa Rica, moving on a polar orbit towards the poles and taking a temperature reading you would notice some interesting things. Of course, on average, it's a lot colder as we, as we move towards the poles if, if we're flying you know, near the ground. But interestingly, on the longer term pulse of the climate, we can see that parts of the world are actually warming faster than others. And in the Arctic, it has been warming two to three times faster than the global average. That has, of course, a lot of implications. And when we talk about adaptation, it's not just um, thinking about the future and you know, thinking about uh, future systems and how humans will adapt in the Arctic and in places like Greenland and, and parts of Nunavut and northern Canada. Adaptation is already uh, ingrained into everyday life. So I recently had the, the privilege to spend some time in Greenland conducting the first national survey on people's experiences of climate change in the Greenlandic uh, context. And we found that over three quarters of the population received some of their diet from wild foods they hunt, fish, or gather in such a way you could really imagine just how their everyday life was deeply connected to the surrounding ecology, such that how the fish and animals adapt to climate change in their local area also have implications for uh, their traditional way of life and how they you know, have uh, had to deal with these changes. To just provide a specific example of you know, vulnerability, 
as the climate system has you know heated up, the Arctic sea ice is is thinning, and this is important because it's also a platform for social, economic, and cultural activities. So a lot of people hunt and travel between uh, towns in the north and west and east sides of Greenland on the sea ice in the winter. And we found that eight in ten people think that the sea ice has become more dangerous to travel on, um, and this coincides with really the past twelve years where we've seen the twelve lowest. Uh, record sea ice extents ever recorded in the satellite era. So all of this is happening at the same time. And we met numerous uh, individuals who have changed their uh, hunting practices. In some cases, in some towns, they've stopped going out on the sea ice. Parts of Greenland, they've also moved where they, they go out onto the sea ice. So no longer on uh, some of the more open uh, sea-facing sides. People can only go into the fjords. And so people are already shifting their sort of uh, social and ecological uh, behaviors. I think what's important as we, you know, zoom back is to to really think about how, you know, social ecological systems, not just in places like the Arctic, but really around uh, the, the globe will adapt to these ongoing changes. Fascinating. So as we zoom back to Costa Rica, what are some of the vulnerabilities that people in Costa Rica face? Costa Rica has several important dimensions of vulnerability, which are susceptible to different environmental hazards in different ways. So when we think about environmental hazards in the Costa Rican context, we really think about heat stress. With climate change, we expect there to be more days with uh, heat stress and temperatures above both 30 degrees Celsius and 35 degrees Celsius that create stresses on the human body and thermoregulatory system. So how people shed heat from their body biologically, um, it becomes you know, a challenge for them and you know, other organisms as well in different ways. Heavy precipitation is another hazard. And of course, uh, droughts and, and flooding also are hazards that you know, basically are, are poised to increase as climate change progresses in the Costa Rican context. And when we think about vulnerability, Hazards are sort of the background. That's what's happening in the environment. That's what's you know changing. A vulnerability is the exposure, and exposure is not felt equally depending on both the environment and you know the social and individual person or 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 systems that are exposed to those changes. And what's important with vulnerability is it's not random. It's it's not distributed randomly through a population and society. There are certain groups and individuals, again, largely for environmental reasons, that are disproportionately exposed to a majority of the environmental hazards and those implications. So in other words, our our environment, both socially, like who we're connected to in a society, and physically where we live, our health all of that plays a vital role in how an environmental change or hazard would affect us. Totally. And let's take, you know, a toy out of the box, so to speak, as an analogy. Imagine holding up in one of your hands a Russian doll, where each doll is nested within another, such that you take one doll out and then there's a smaller one and you keep going. A human ecologist, well-known, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, used this analogy to describe the way that humans are nested within social systems. And so when we think about you know, vulnerability and also as we think about climate adaptation, a useful sort of metaphor to think about is all of these nested systems exist kind of within each other at the same time. And when we think about how we want to understand the impacts of climate change, but also how we might intervene uh, through design, we have to think about 
the people, you know, the, the sort of uh, individuals, but also the ongoing interactions between those people and, and objects and, and different stimuli and their surrounding environments. So this is sort of the process and also the context in which people are situated and immersed in. And that consists of multiple different levels, again, that are sort of nested inside of each other. So we have microsystems, which are, uh, you can think of as the sort of rooms or, or settings where we are. They can be places, whether that's you know a park or a bedroom or a household. And as you go through everyday life, all of these little sort of pockets of, of, of environments that we, that we travel through are connected. And, and the connection of these networks of different environments are referred to as mesosystems. So these are the connections between the settings that we inhabit in our everyday lives. And again, that are, it's where we live. It's where we're exposed to uh, changes in our environment. And outside of that, there are exosystems. So these are environments that still influence us indirectly. You, know, you can think about your parents' workplace when you were growing up. You know, what happened and, and maybe your, your parents' work could also affect your life and maybe um, help you become you know, uh, more sort of resilient or, or protected against certain environmental changes or vice versa. They could make you more vulnerable to them. Zooming out even further, all of those systems and environments that we just described are sort of nested within these larger macro systems. And what, what's meant by a macro system is sort of global, you know, economic systems, uh, government uh, systems, institutions, these larger sort of components of the social fabric. What's important is that it's not just a hierarchy in the sense that as you zoom out things, you know, the, the sort of larger scale becomes more important. What's important to understand is that all of these systems are exposed to changes in our environment at different levels. And we have to understand the sort of multi-layered aspect of climate change when we think about adaptation. And we're kind of missing a really core one here, and that is time. And so um, in the bioecological model, which is really what we're describing, um, this idea of a chronosystem is really important because as we move throughout our everyday lives, we have certain temporal rhythms. So, you know, different times a day, we're more active, more exposed to the environment, more likely to be outside or more likely to be inside. So how we experience, you know, our environments is not random throughout the course of the day. And just like any other, you know, organism, we are sort of entrained to these different circadian rhythms um, of waking and sleeping that really dictate a lot of our patterns throughout the day. So all of these components are really important as we start to think about how to adapt to changes in our environment and the social ecological context in which we exist. Yeah, so I'm imagining like a nested doll that's actually got connections between each doll at every level and there's sort of different versions of that doll across different moments in time. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's sort of like, you know, I, I don't know what those 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 sort of giant inflatable balls are where you can like run around inside of like an inflatable <laughs> ball that's inside of another inflatable ball. And like imagine that, uh, of course, with, you know, millions of, of moving parts. And and that's really the sort of complex uh, sphere of, of our environment that we inhabit. So stepping back, what kind of social and ecological systems are particularly at play with regard to climate change in Costa Rica? Yeah. So, I mean, hovering across Costa Rica, we, we probably observe a number of different really important social ecological systems with regards to climate change. Um, 
when we think about sea level rise and the projections of sea level rise in the future, of course, coastal infrastructure becomes an important component of this. And the coastal infrastructure as a social system is important because a lot of people actually choose to live near the coast. Um, you know, for many ecological reasons, it can be a great place to engage in recreational activities, whether that's you know swimming or enjoying the environment in other ways and the views that it, it provides. But on the other hand, that comes with some risk. And we see a lot of those risks are uh, basically increasing. You know, a sea level uh, rises, basically the sort of floor in which larger sort of storms and other, you know, flooding events, hurricanes, et cetera, operate is, is risen. So, you know, as that floor rises, you can imagine it doesn't take as much of an additional sea level rise uh, due to a temporary storm as it used to to flood a larger area. And that, of course, has a lot of practical implications, not just for flooding people's homes, but also, of course, the emotional stress that that you know, takes to, to basically repair, in some cases, move and deal with. And, of course, the, the vulnerability of, of not just losing something physical, but potentially losing someone. All of those are, are important dimensions of environmental stress that are becoming, um, again, uh, more, more frequent as the sort of sea level rises, not just in Costa Rica, but elsewhere as well. We can also think about uh, biodiversity and tourism. You know, in Costa Rica, biodiversity is a huge part of the draw, um, not just for organisms that have selected to live in Costa Rica, but also for those people that want to come here to appreciate a marvel of the world and some of the majesty that Costa Rica has to offer. And basically, you know, as, um, again, climate change puts different pressures on certain bio and, and ecological systems, there are risks that certain organisms that, you know, are an important part of the fabric, uh, the sort of, you know, biodiversity uh, in Costa Rica could be susceptible. Um, and we, again, already have seen some evidence of that um, in, in progress. So, so that's important, you know, to preserve that. And it's also an opportunity in the tourism industry itself to really uh, connect with some of those, you know, social ecological dimensions to emphasize and talk about these narratives of how things are changing in Costa Rica, um, how adaptation is, you know, already underway, and, and what can be, you know, dealt uh, or done to deal with these uh, very real pressures that are being placed on the bio, biological and uh, social systems in Costa Rica. We can also think about agricultural areas. You know, in Costa Rica, a large part of the economy is centered on agricultural production. But of course, overgrazing and, you know, both rural and also urban areas has uh, led to, you know, a lot of sort of uh, uh, vulnerable landscapes that are susceptible to landslides, especially with, again, the increasing likelihood of high high intensity precipitation events, you know, can create some problems. So that's, you know, a classic example where this social ecological system has also led to a new sort of vulnerability that with the projected changes in climate can create new hazards and risks that need to be um, accounted for. And finally, you know, I think going full circle back to San Jose, back to the sort of urban heart of uh, Costa Rica, we can really think about what the implications are for 
people living in not only San Jose, but the cities of the world. And the majority, you know, of the human race already, um, you know, calls city home. Most people uh, around the world now live in cities, and this is projected to just increase by proportion, um, according to both the UN and World Health Organization. So really, the environments, the social environments in which most people will experience and be exposed to climate change is actually in cities. And thus, as we start to think about adaptation, we have to think about how to make our cities more resilient and also more sort of buffered from a lot of the stressors that are developing and emerging. And one of the big ones is urban heating. At least in Europe this summer and parts of Northern America, we've seen some incredible heat waves. Precisely, urban heating, the urban heat island effect is a you know, huge potential environmental hazard. You know, as people um, you know, build up cities, and oftentimes cities have a lot of surfaces that absorb solar radiation. You, know, you think of asphalt, you think of roads, you think of concrete. Um, and cities also produce a lot of heat just from the equipment that exists there, you know, the uh, transportation systems that exist there. All of these um, you know, urban uh, systems are basically producing a lot of uh, waste heat. And thus in cities, a lot of new sort of threats can be amplified by both that urban context and the change in the climate distribution. So what are some of the implications for health? Yeah, the, the pathways between climate change and, you know, human and social ecology really have sort of a, a, a two paths that, that they commonly take. And of course, this is really oversimplifying things because <laughs> oftentimes these two pathways are uh, connected. One is the physical health burden. The other is sort of the mental health burden. And on the physical health side, there is sort of uh, growing evidence that you know, both uh, heat waves and also just exposure to temperature itself can actually drive behavioral and health outcomes. Um, and, and so what's really interesting here is that we can see that there's a direct relationship, a sort of U-shaped relationship between temperature and mortality due to not only heat-related deaths, but other causes of mortality as well. Um, and that's controlling for other seasonal factors. So this is very strong uh, causal evidence, mm. both in the sort of medical literature and also increasingly in the health economic literature as well. And we also see other implications. So, so interestingly, with regards to mental health, um, national studies now have shown, again, controlling for seasonal variation, that as the temperature rises, the sort of likelihood of uh, suicides and other forms of conflict actually increase. And interestingly, this is not only observed with people, but even among uh, lab experiments with uh, mice, there's this sort of similar temperature threshold where uh, signs of uh, aggression increase as you increase the temperature. And, and so what's really important here is to realize that, you know, as humans, we are biological and you know, uh, natural systems and, and we um, are deeply uh, sort of tethered to the environments that we're living in. And as these changes progress, you know, the impacts also will you know, progress. And when we think about adaptation, we have to think about not only addressing you know, changes in the physical infrastructure, but also how we provide resources to improve uh, mental health, address existing vulnerabilities that can be exacerbated or worsened by climate change. And, and it's not only heat issues. We're also talking about shifting health vectors as like mosquitoes or bringing new diseases to areas that weren't weren't reached before or waterborne diseases that maybe are being exacerbated by polluted water and just the general mental health burden of also 
thinking about all of this change in ecological damage. Absolutely. And food systems, too. You know, I think that's an important component to us, obviously, in Costa Rica, um, you know, issues of food security, you know, with changes in, in both the you know, periodicity and intensity of droughts, you know, have implications for uh, local food security. It also has, you know, on a larger global level implications for basic nutrition. There's very, very strong evidence now that, you know, increases um, in CO2 actually can affect the nutritional content of some of the sort of core crops. So, so that's really important, you know, on a global level to realize that our entire sort of nutrient system is also tied to the climate. So when we think about, you know, how to lessen the load or reduce the impact of these uh, changes, there's two sort of buzzwords that often pop up. One is resilience, another is adaptation. You know, our studio largely focuses on the latter um, adaptation. One simple way of thinking about this is that resilience is often a way of sort of reducing the uh, immediate uh, impact of, for instance, an acute event such as, you know, a uh, storm. So building resilience uh, for some of these uh, climate events that are more likely like intense storms, preparing for those eventualities, you know, is a great example of sort of building resilience. Adaptation requires actually, you know, changing behaviors and, and really changing behaviors over a longer period of time, shifting to the you know, new normal in a way. And, and so um, as we think about all of this, we really have to keep in mind that it's sort of both a short-term uh, shift in preparedness when we think about resilience, but also on the other hand, in order to achieve adaptation, we also have to sort of re-invent, you know, in some cases redesign, um, a lot of our both daily patterns and other uh, systems that we interact with every day. Yeah, so not an easy task <laughs> and also pretty heavy stuff that we've been discussing. So how do we approach and, and sort of cope with these these heavy topics? Yeah, I mean, there's there's almost an additional mental health burden and actually a lot of researchers now discuss this freely of just, you know, dwelling or thinking about these huge global massive implications for both human but also non-human systems. Um, some people have uh, uh, coined this term ecological grief, the idea that you know we experience grief not only when we lose you know uh, someone or something, but also that we can feel grief when thinking about ecological systems that are changing. And you know beyond that, our sense of place, if you think about your home or the environment that you grew up in, also, you know, again, going back to the Arctic, where in some places people's uh, home environments have changed a ton, whether that's the permafrost or changing sea ice, et cetera, all of those changes can alter home in such a way that it no longer feels like home. And there's even a new term that a Australian philosopher uh, sort of developed to describe this phenomena. It's called solastalgia. And that's this sense of homeless, homelessness, even when you are physically occupying the same space because the situation has changed so much. So this can sound and is often, you know, uh, a little depressing as we, we deal with a lot of the realities of, of these challenges that, that we're facing. But also it's important to uh, think about, you know, ways of coping. So we encourage you to take a part in really developing a ritual to cope with some of these stresses of just thinking about dealing with climate change. Yeah. And that can also be quite social too, figuring out what gives you joy, whether that's hanging out with people you love or going, getting out into the nature and walking. Also one of the reasons why we just walked through nature itself 
but finding those 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 moments where you can connect and sort of take care of your own mental space and energy. Absolutely. You know, restoring from uh, stress. And, and there's a lot of resources, both in our environment and also with practices that we can create that can uh, restore uh, from stress and, and promote, you know, both relaxation and, and reflection to really make sense of what's going on and not just to feel helpless or hopeless about it. I want to pull out something that we've sort of hinted at throughout this conversation, and that's the idea that the impacts are not being felt across the board, that there are places that might be more exposed than others. There are places that are more vulnerable than others. There are people that are more vulnerable than others. And part of the the real challenge of climate adaptation is that there's great inequality in how people are being affected, but also incredible inequality in how people can cope and adapt. We don't all have the resources to move away from dangerous areas, or we don't all have the money to to pay for family members when somebody gets sick or somebody loses a job. So how do we approach that issue of, of equality and justice? I think the first step is acknowledging it. And and really, you know, when we talk about um, you know, social equality and, and also, you know, environmental justice and climate justice, we have to acknowledge that a fundamental part of climate change is that, you know, it is, it is and has been caused by, you know, human um, industrial activity and, and really human technologies. It's sort of a byproduct of, of human technologies and industrialization. But oftentimes those were developed in certain places by, you know, certain groups of people. And now a lot of the effects that we see with regards to climate change are disproportionately affecting a lot of groups that were the least responsible and still are for a lot of these issues. And so, you know, an important developing um, sort of field in the future is, is sort of attribution, you know, and, and actually thinking about the responsibility um, of climate change and connecting the dots to, you know, the uh, costs and externalities that were created from, again, industrial activities and also those who are now being impacted and having uh, their livelihoods and, and you know, uh, in some cases, their entire communities moved or, or migrated. You can think of the Pacific Islands, especially uh, places where, you know, people are losing their land uh, due to uh, climate and environmental change. So, all of this is important to keep in mind. Again, it's a heavy topic, but it's important to keep in mind that oftentimes the impacts of climate change are, fe- are felt the most acutely and deeply by those that are the least responsible for it. And we'll be going, I think, deeper into this tomorrow um, as we have the opportunity of going into a very vital but also very vulnerable community in the heart of San Jose. So this has been a longer episode, but pretty important stuff and also kind of heavy. And the rest of the week, we'll continue to explore these heavy topics. So with that in mind, what's one practice that you can develop that can help you cope with ecological grief?